the next part is training where you're waking up at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah, you're doing things that are physically just, just drooling for to you. And to be able to get do that and be able to move forward every day and be in the summer camp and be able to wake up every day and go at it over and over again, it really helped me train my brain to think of this as more of a challenge versus just a punishment. Mm. And I think about that and how residency was. Uh, when I trained at Grady, we were one of the few programs that had 24-hour in-house on call. And it was challenging. And I remember thinking to myself, I, this is nothing but summer camp. You wake up you wake up at the drop of a dime, you go, put your pats on, you play, versus you wake up out of media sleep and go to a cold. Hi folks, welcome to episode 30 of the Emergency Mind podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Jimmy is a pharmacist specializing in emergency medicine, and he's an incredible clinician educator, bringing a ton of knowledge about emergency pharmacy to all of us through his work on his own show, The Farm So Hard Podcast. Jimmy is originally from Orlando, Florida, and he received his doctorate of pharmacy from the Presbyterian College School of Pharmacy and did his residency split between Florida Hospital in Orlando and the Grady Healthcare System in Atlanta, Georgia. In this episode, we talk about Jimmy's stellar work at the interface of clinical pharmacy and emergency medicine. We get into the key role that clinical pharmacists can play embedded in emergency medicine teams as they're doing high-performance trauma and resuscitation care. We talk about cross-disciplinary communication and the value of building teams around you. But most importantly, we talk about the discipline of showing up every day and just getting the work done. It's an awesome conversation, and I am happy to share it with you. If you like what you're hearing here on the Emergency Mind podcast, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free, it's awesome, and it does a lot of deep dives into some of the topics we cover here on the podcast, as well as bringing together ideas about performance under pressure from all across the high-performance universe. You can find it at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Okay, all that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. I've been really looking forward to talking with you about this. I, I love your podcast. I love what you're doing. And I'm, I'm just, I'm honored to have you on board. Uh, thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this all week. So uh, it's definitely something that I've been looking to get into, kind of taking a step out of the, the content, some of the clinical stuff, and really getting into the emergency mind. So super excited to be on the show. Phenomenal. So um, for people that operate in different systems or even across the U.S. or across the world or whatever, can, can you give everybody a quick breakdown of like what an ED clinical pharmacist is, what you do, what you're built out of, and, and what your mission is? Perfect. So AD pharmacists, again, we're, uh, we're graduate doctors of pharmacy. A lot of us now within, within America, I can say, are going on and getting residency training, uh, first year training that's more generalized and then a lot more having specialized training within emergency department. So that's kind of our background. There's a good number of individuals who are undergoing critical care specialty training. There's also a good number of people who are also undergoing a couple of years of toxicology training with some uh, just dabbling into emergency medicine. So as far as what we do, I, I try to explain it because it becomes very interesting what people think we do. And I always say, you know, we, we don't count medications really fast. We don't call the buggy and tell you that this is all these things are wrong. I think the best way to understand what we do is I try to take 
what's in your brain and put it into the patient's vein. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, I want, if you have a patient that's septic and this guy looks sick to you, you're wondering, hey, what risk factors does this guy have? Uh, what can I give? I'm going to be there to get that information from you, recommend cefepime or recommend a certain antibiotic and bring that to the bedside, compound it, get it set up for you and actually make sure it goes into the patient. And I'm going to do that in the most uh, efficacious, the safest, and for my hospital administrators listening, in the most cost efficient way as well. <laughs> so that's what we do in, in our mission. I think a lot of us would just want to be the best team player. We want to help the patient in the best way we can, and we want to get your goal across and help our nursing colleagues get their, their mission across to the patient with anything regarding uh, the medication use process from thinking about what's the right one to use from you guys' standpoint to actually how to administer that medication effectively. So I think that's what our background is. That's what we try to do. And I think our mission is just to be the, the best teammate that you have when any critical patient come in or any patient in general, but particularly it knows that things are going crazy. We want to be there at the bedside beside you to make that thing go from brain to vein. Man, I love that. And I'm lucky enough to work in uh, mostly emergency situations where we have clinical pharmacists, clinical pharmacists and the ED as part of the team. And it makes an enormous difference to our ability to provide patient care, and which I think in a sense is sort of indicative of the way that crises and emergencies work in general, right? Which is that, you know, as we talk about in this podcast all the time, we have these three things. We have, um, we have uncertainty in the situation, uh, which is that we don't necessarily know what's happening or what the right thing to do is. We have high potential impact where the outcome of the situation really matters to, to the patient, to the community, to us, to everybody. Um, and we have high pressure, which is that there's this incredible amount of stress on the situation uh, we don't have all the resources we need, and there's a mismatch between what we have available and what we would need in an ideal situation to take care of the person. And when you mix those things together and then try to superimpose on them um, these fairly complicated, in some cases, uh, questions about what the right medication is to deliver and how and how much and why, you end up with a, a really fascinating problem, which is that you're trying to do a lot of this really deep system two thinking, these really complicated trade-off analyses. Uh, but you're trying to do that um, you know, while running a full bore sprint at the same time. And that's a really, that's a really hard setup. It's sort of like what one of my uh, previous podcast guests, Lauren Allister, described as trying to do multiplication while people are screaming at you at the same yep. time. Um, and I think that the idea of saying, okay, well, one, recognizing, hey, that's a challenge, right? That's a challenge in the situation. And two, saying, hey, why don't we bring people together to try to solve that problem by cognitively offloading uh, certain sets of tasks to different individuals on the team, uh, making sure people are absolute experts in their own field and then smashing those fields together in a productive way. Um, I think that's a, that's a wonderful solution and, and a great thing to be a part of. Um, how, how did you get into that? Like what was, what was uh, earlier versions of, of, of Jimmy like? Uh, I think what happened was I'm traditionally a football player. I played football for 15 years coming up. I played defensive back. And I spent, I would like to say, nice. the majority of my time on my toes with uncertainty and reacting to things in front of me. I uh, went to pharmacy because it was, I was really good at science, I was really good at math, and those things I thought just cognitively would lead me to the right pharmacy field. But one thing I noticed was that I had a hard time in some of the slower paced environments. I had a hard time when I wasn't interacting with large groups of people when I was used to interacting with 
50 plus individuals for 15, 50, 15 years of my life. And I was lucky enough to meet my mentor, Derek Clay, at Spartanburg Regional. And I went there one day and I was like, what does a pharmacist do in the ER? <laughs> you know, hmm. what, what are we going to do there? It's, it's crazy stuff happening all the time. And went to my first code, went to my first trauma and noticed the interactions that were there. And I was like, how do you know what they're going to ask for? <laughs> how do you know why you, you're, you're naming studies in the middle of a trauma resuscitation and say, hey, you want TXA crash too? You know, it's like just very quickly and everyone responded to him in such a, a, a respected way. I said, hey, I would love to do this. And I started to realize that my skill set that was not in a pharmacy curriculum was best suited for being in an emergency department where there was unknowns at all times. I had to be able to respond very quickly to information that was given to me and process it and be able to uh, deliver uh, a result immediately. And all of those things led to emergency medicine. Dude, that, that, what an awesome story that is to describe that that way. And, and so true. And like, I'm just, I'm flashing back to so many different codes and trauma patients during my own training where I was lucky enough to have, um, you know, of a wide variety of ED clinical pharmacists gently nudge me and be like, you know, Dan, I think you meant to ask for this or like, hey, here's a slightly better way to do this. And that, that outsider vantage point is something that I hope that we can really talk about a lot in this podcast. And outsiders may be the wrong word because, you know, you're definitely, you all are definitely inside, you're part of the team, you're part of the unit, you're an incredibly crucial part of it. But you have a, a set of eyes that are approaching the problem from a different angle than whoever it is that's leading the code. And I think that there's tremendous strength in that position. And so I'm hoping we get a chance to press on that today in terms of how people in that position uh, can support and influence and augment and do everything possible to, to achieve the mission of the team. Um, but before we do that, though, I, I want to go back to, to one thing you said, which is, that, you know, sort of like, let's press on this idea of like your time as a defensive back really preparing you to, to do this role in the emergency department. And what, what was that like? What's the training like? What's the mental aspect of it like? Like, you know, when did you first start thinking about maybe as you think about yourself in a defensive back position, like, hey, the mental aspect of my game is equally important to my, you know, my actual physical skills on the field? I think one of the key concepts is when you go from the high school level to the college level, mm -hmm. there are so many individuals that are just as good. And to be able to separate yourself, you had to watch film. That's a, a part of the game where it was a cognitive level where to understand where the other individual may be at a particular time based off very small details. If he lined up two yards away from the sideline versus three yards away from the sideline, there was a higher probability of that person running a certain route. If that individual would go in motion the play before, you would have a higher probability of that person running a different route. So from that standpoint, you understand how to prepare for the game in a more cognitive manner. The next part is training, where you're waking up at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah, you're doing things that are physically just, just drooling for to you. And to be able to get do that and be able to move forward every day and be in the summer camp and be able to wake up every day and go after it over and over again. It really helped me train my brain to think of this as more of a challenge versus just a punishment. Mm. And I think about that and how residency was. Uh, when I trained at Grady, we were one of the few programs that had 24 hour in-house on call and it was challenging. And I remember thinking to myself, this is nothing but summer camp. 
you wake up, you wake up at the drop of a dime, you go put your pats on, you play versus you wake up at a minute of sleep and go to a coat. Mm -hmm. So some of these things start to connect for me. And I realized that training my brain to understand what the next move and anticipate the next move from a defensive back standpoint, helped me anticipate when their providers can ask for calcium in a, in, a, in a code. It helped me anticipate when I saw a particular rhythm and I saw my team's response to a particular rhythm in a code, what medication to have prepped and ready to go. And all these things really, I think, led to me being in a, in a more comfortable position to be in the emergency department, just due to the fact that I was so used to uncertainty. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this quote probably, but there's a quote from the Japanese swordsman Miyamoto Masashi in the Book of Five Rings that says, "If you if you know the way broadly, you will begin to see it in all things." And what he's describing in that is his effort as a as a swordsman, which is that when he studies deeply his craft, the more he dives into his craft, the more it crosses over to other parts of his life from one thing to another, and the principles that underlie his craft as a swordsman underlie basically anything else that he does and, and it strikes me that that's sort of what you're saying from this which is that when you wake up and you know and you're seeing yourself in a code and you're struggling with how to get through that when you're when you're still sort of training yourself and you say hey this is me putting on the pads and going to work like that's awesome man what what an amazing thing to be able to sort of cross-pollinate your ideas like that um how did that, like, when you say that framework of like, hey, I'm going to watch film, I'm going to train, I'm going to push myself, I'm going to study the mental part. How was that? Was that given to you? Was that taught to you? Was that something you developed yourself? Was that, was that like in the locker room, you know, after practice, like, hey, guys, how are you training your mind? Like, what was that situation? Like? No, I, I really think that it was something that you just picked up from, you know, the great players. And the thing you would always hear it was always favorable to be watching film after practice. It was always favorable to be do extra sprints. And the guys who are great Hall of Fame players like Ray Lewis, they had a mental edge. That was one thing that they always had was a mental edge. And those were the things for me that I thought that, hey, I may not be 6-1-2-40, but I can watch film every day. I may not can bench press 400 pounds, but I can stay after and get a few more reps. And it became to the point to where I took great pride in knowing that mentally I was going to be prepared or my, my, my teammate or my, my competitor may not have been prepared. And for me, I knew that the one thing I could do is be obsessed with my, my training regimen and I can be obsessed with physically, mentally dominating someone within the game. And that for me just led to a continuous cycle of, hey, if I, I'm pretty good at this. I'm, I can do this and not get tired. And I really enjoy this. And just getting on the field and when someone knew that you knew to play. And within football, there was a physical punishment to someone not knowing where to be. And I really enjoyed capitalizing on that. And I always thought of the, the look in someone's eyes right before you hit them. This is, you know, it's about 10, 12 years ago when the, the, the game was a little more violent. <laughs> I just remembered that mental thought pattern and it would make me, hey, I got to study a little bit more. I have to put myself in position to, to win because if I don't, then they will have a mental edge on me and they may already have a, a physical edge. My first game that I played was against Clemson. Um, and the first receiver that I ever covered was DeAndre Hopkins. He's having a phenomenal career <laughs> right now. <laughs> the first person I lined up against was against him and he just 
just last week caught a Hail Mary that won them the game. He's one of the highest paid receivers in the NFL right now. Right, so right. I knew very quickly that I wouldn't be the tallest, I would be the fastest, I wouldn't jump the highest. But I think mentally being able to prepare myself to be in better position really took me to the next edge. And I enjoyed that superiority in, in, in a sense within a locker room that Jimmy was always going to be prepared. And I think once I got that reputation, it, it, it fit to me doing more and more. And it was very successful for me. I, I, Jimmy, I love that, that concept of pride and preparation and, and knowing that, that you can't control everything. You can't control what else comes on the field. You can't control the patients you get in the ER, but you can control your preparation and you can take pride in being incredibly prepared to deploy your skill under pressure. Um, I think that's one of the core themes. One of the reasons that I, I built this project to start with is believing that uh, we are able to prepare more, we're able to do better. And that part of that is, is sitting down and talking about what it's like to perform under pressure. Um, but thank you for putting it that way. Pride and preparation. I think that's, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that as a motto. I love it. <laughs> um, okay. So, so take me forward in time. So you, you were, loving being prepared in the football field. You were loving doing this. You loved science and, and you felt good at it. And then what, what brought you to pharmacy? I think I was just able, actually, I, before I, I knew pharmacy when I was in 11th grade, uh, I have a cool story. I looked at everyone. I had a, a chemistry professor that grabbed me after class, after, and after I had got an A on the chemistry test. There were, I think, close to 30 individuals in that class, and me and my best friends were the only two passing the class. Uh, I come from a inner, inner city Orlando where not a lot of individuals that I grew up with made it to be 25 years old, not in, in jail or prison, or not living below the federal poverty level. So those are the individuals that was around me, and she pulled me inside and asked me, why did not I take her class serious? And I said, Miss um, Walker, I just got an A on your, your test. How much more seriously can I take it? She said, you know, you are passing the class and all of your buddies are failing and you know how to communicate with them. How, how seriously are you taking this? How, huh. So that day she said, hey, I get, make you a deal. You come, you come back to class tomorrow with something outside of football. You know, she said, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, a pharmacist. You can be any of those things. Just go home, look it up and tell me the required schooling for it and the salary. And I'll let you go to the, to the gym for a week after you finish your work. <laughs> and I remember saying like, oh, you must think I'm crazy if I'm not going to go to the gym every day. So I went home, watched the episode of House. And I was like, this is pretty cool. You know, the, the, the medicine side of things. And I was like, but I'm particularly interested and the drug side of things. And growing up where I grew up, drugs was a, a part of life. You heard it, you seen it, you were surrounded by it. And I wonder like, how can I connect something that I'm good at, which is science and math, something I'm surrounded by, but something that's gonna get me and my family out of this tough situation. Mm. And that night I looked up every single profession and decided that pharmacy was the one for me because I was particularly interested in how to better utilize medication, better utilize drugs, better understand drugs. And if it wasn't for that professor pulling me to the side that day, I probably would have never thought of it. So that's how I got into pharmacy. And when I went to pharmacy, when I went to um, undergrad to football, I didn't go to any school that didn't have a pharmacy school connected with it. Mm. So I knew that 
hopefully I can have my scholarship paid for part of pharmacy school. And once I, once I got there, I did well in my prerequisite classes. And when I went to pharmacy school, it was a huge, you know, shock to me because the first time that I was doing anything without football and I had to figure out how can I replace my team? How can I replace the thrill and the, 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 the joy and the, the pressure of being on the football field? And SimLab was the first time I felt that, where I didn't know what to expect. It was a sim week where we had cardiac arrest. We had a lot of the trauma-like situations, and I really enjoyed that. And I got to prepare in a similar fashion because I knew there was something to prepare for that may show up that I had, that I had to accomplish. And I had a team involvement with it. And I thought to myself for the first time, this is, this is, this is, you know, seven on seven. This is something that I've always done before. And it led to me, you know, being really enjoyed that and meet my mentor, Derek Clay and being involved in the ED. And I think all the pieces lined up for pharmacy and emergency medicine pharmacy in particular, because now I don't believe I can do anything else. That is amazing, man. That is absolutely amazing. And, and I'm, I'm going to go on out on a limb here and say that you probably took that sim super seriously and dove into it with both feet and were like just ready to go from the moment it started. Absolutely. Hmm. That's super cool. And had you ever been exposed to anything like that before? Like any sort of a, like that type of a challenge? I mean, no. obviously the football piece of it, but, but like that sort of a, a, a mental challenge with it. And, and man, I, dude, I just have a billion questions. Like, how did the other people on your team interact with you? Because I would imagine that fairly naively that the other folks on your football team were in some sense similarly motivated. You had a very clear cut, very well-defined goal that you all were working towards. You had a coach that guided you. You had a general philosophy of your team. Like you, were, you had a locker room that you prepped in ahead of time. Um, that's fairly different than what working in the emergency department looks like in a lot of cases mm -hmm. uh, where the goal for each individual patient can be pretty wildly different. Although keeping them alive is, you know, a fair constant. Um, there's not a coach. There's not really a locker room. And often you come together with people that, especially if you're talking about a code situation where, you know, where you're part of a swarm team or a flash team where like, maybe you don't know anybody else on the team and you're just walking in being like, Hey, who's the patient? Like, where are we? Um, so what was that like? What was that like sort of starting to feel the edges of those differences? I think the, the first thing that I've always tried to do is consider myself a facilitator. And I always want to be the person in a group that connects different people. Uh, growing up, I, I had to move almost every two years growing up. So I never got comfortable in a situation and I would make new friends. So when these new environments came within football, if I had to go change teams or we had a lot of times where we did summer summer leagues. We had to mix up with different team, different team players and different different groups and just play football together. And that led to me understanding some very simple um, philosophies that we want to win, we want to get better, we want to do these different things. So the philosophy was always to win. But what win means to certain individuals change. And I think particularly with the emergency department, we all want to win. But what does that mean? And from my perspective. I always thought about how can I help the next person get that win? How can I contribute to that win? And once I knew that it was a completely different environment, but I found myself comfort in the knowledge that I'm here to win and connect the group, it really helped me out a lot. And I was always that individual who did too much, prepared too much, who was too intense. But 
I was always trying to connect with different individuals in unique ways. That way, when it came time to perform, like the sim lab within football, now within within coach, coach and traumas, I had a personal connection built with them. And I wanted to make sure that I connect outside before we got into very intense situations. And that's the similarity I've seen throughout the entire course of my career, my role within teams and how I've been able to effectively communicate with individuals within teams prior to intense activity and during intense activity. So, so what's your secret there? Let's, let's push on that. So let's say, and maybe this is like pretty close to real life, right? You're just changing positions in some sense. You're about to leave one home and come to another. Um, and you're about to, to jump into an existing team and you're going to be part of that team for the foreseeable future. Um, what do you do? How do you, how do you start it off? How do you build those, those conversations and how, you know, how do you communicate around those really intense moments for people as you're starting to become part of a team? And then, and then what do you hope that communication grows into? I think initially when I'm, I'm, it's very easy for me to reach out to someone and say, Hey, how you doing? My name's Jimmy. What's your name? And build those very foundational relationships. Uh, that's the, the first step. And I've been fortunate with residency training, but pharmacy school residency, I've changed positions. I've changed teams, I would say, for the four times in the last four years. So being able to get within a new team and build some very small wins, I would like to say, with an individual and just learn something new about them. And over a period of time within pharmacy, you're always there to help. And there's always a small thing you can do to display your worthiness. When I first got to my ER here, it was like, what can a pharmacist do? Because they never had ER pharmacists. Mm. One of the things I, I bring the antibiotics to the bedside, mix them for you, set them up on a pump, you just push play. Can I help you with this? And I would just do all those things. I would go the extra mile to display that I can be helpful in those situations. And then I'll continue to go back and try to build on a relationship over and over again. And I think I really take it personal with how I build relationships with individuals because I know that that's going to be the key for me to get a win, so to say. But for me, it's the most enjoyable aspect of my job, being able to work with unique and interesting people. And I never will be able to get to understand how unique and interesting individuals are if I never commit to learning them. I commit to learning names. I commit to learning as many things as that individual let me know. And I build up on it and I try to make sure I continue a conversation from day to day or week to week and just build and mold to where it gets to the point to where you feel that like you've known me for years, <laughs> but it's been a few weeks. And I try to continue to dig deeper and deeper to those relationships to where it's only been a couple of months, but you feel like I've been here forever and we can now grow to communicate differently in intense situations where we can sit back and relax in others. So, so part of your win is in that sense, and part of how you define a win is building that community and sort of being the, being the tide that raises all the ships around you. Absolutely. Uh, and how do you teach that to people? Because one of your jobs now, as I understand, is you're also, you're also teaching, you're now the mentor, you're also teaching generations of pharmacists and people coming up with you. How do you teach that idea of what it is to win? I think the, the initial step you have to, uh, you actually display those things first. And when I was training, I had a, had a uh, preceptor, Jim Priano, who's one of the smartest pharmacists I've ever been around at Florida Hospital Orlando. I would ask him, what are you thinking right now? Like before something would happen, I would say, 
This may sound weird, but can you just think out loud for me and tell me what you're thinking? And he would say, I'm looking at what the attendees looking at the EKG. I'm looking at the nurse grab syringes out because she's thinking this. So I'll always go through and like explain these things. So now when I'm with students and residents, I say, hey, I'm going to think out loud now. And I want you to consider these certain things. I'm going to make sure I ask this attending this question prior to the patient getting here. So when it, when a patient does get here, I have a vowel off the place in my hands. Oh yeah, he, he asked me about that earlier today. So my thing is being able to explain these things while I can, but also encourage them to really take seriously the concept of building a, a team, building uh, understanding what other, other individuals in that room want and understand there's a time and a place for you to express yourself in certain ways. And there's time and a place for you to be able to watch and gather information so you can prepare for whatever the request that the team needs at that time. So I think explaining these things prior to intense activity and really encouraging them to build relationships. I think a lot of it's a time where pharmacists, we want to be behind the scene. We want to be the quiet one. We want to be the, the one that's not engaging as much. But I realize that pharmacy is changing. What teams now require from pharmacists are changing. And I think that our skill set is going to have to change on how we communicate. And I try to explain these things with topic discussions. I try to display these things when I'm responding to certain situations. And I think one of the, the feedback I've got from students and residents was how involved I was in, in, in patient care and how I was able to communicate with them. And I would step out and say, hey, I want you to take over that same level of communication or attempt to. And we can continue to build on top of that. So I think just displaying it, modeling that behavior, thinking out loud to where they can get to what you're thinking about at the time, and then pushing them into that position and say, this is what I expect you to do. Since you've watched me do it, you've heard me talk about it, now I'm gonna coach you to build those relationships, to build that teamwork, and you can see how it responds for you. And so being really explicit, not only about what the value is in the sense that the value is a team win and building the team that like part of our part of our metric as we leave this case is not only how we did for this patient, but how we prep our team to be better for the next patient that comes in tomorrow. Like being really explicit about that value and then also being really explicit about your, your attempt to address that value, which is I am going to speak out loud and here's why this is our value. Here's what we're going to do about it. Um, sort of closing that loop of, of here's our value, here's our plan, watch me do this plan. Am I catching that the right way? Absolutely. Super cool, man. But so how do you apply that to the situation of like a swarm team or a, an X team? So this is something we've talked about a couple of times again on the podcast, which is that in certain circumstances, we apply our emergency knowledge or we apply knowledge under pressure uh, sort of on our home turf, right? We, we expect it, we have our setup, we have our equipment, we have our team that we've been building, uh, whether we're in the emergency department or somewhere else, um, we have our, our sort of home field advantage of that. Other times we're called upon to deliver care or to deliver knowledge under pressure in situations that are very foreign to us. We're in a new environment, we're with a new group. And, and a particular extreme example of that is something that might be called an X team or a swarm team where groups of individuals with very disparate training sets gather at a particular point in space and time to deliver uh, care or to accomplish a mission. It's a really ad hoc team. Sometimes they don't know each other. And then often they disband and sort of go into space, maybe never having a chance to debrief afterwards. Um, 
you know, in the emergency world, this is something that happens uh, certain times in code blues when they're, when they're run, when there's a cardiac arrest outside of the emergency department. Um, there's also a, a number of military examples of it, and the folks at the Mission Critical Teams Institute um, talk quite a great deal about this. But, but I'd, love your, I'd love your take on that, and I'll stop rambling about it, but I'd love your take on that. Like, how do you do these things when you have a swarm team situation? I think the, the first part is going to be prepping yourself for those situations. And you have very small instances where you have a coat on the floor where no one knows who you are when you walk in. And I think identifying myself as the, the pharmacist and identifying, you know, the team lead at that time, I try to be very, my communication changes rapidly. It's very close-ended. Hi, I'm the pharmacist. I'll be taking over this for you. Uh, sometimes people don't necessarily uh, feel okay with that, but the end result usually is a nurse or whoever is managing the medication at the time will gladly hand those things over to me because I'm very assertive in those situations and I like to be very close-ended. If there's a post check and no one's listening to us, again, I repeat that, hey, post check coming now, 10 seconds. Uh, if there's a medication that's called for, I want Epi. Epi's prepared now. Epi's ready. Epi's administered. This is done. You know, I ask for, I always ask for recaps at a certain time periods, and I say, this is what's been done from a pharmacy perspective without being asked. And I think a lot of times I build respect and rapport just within those few moments. And I think sometimes it may rub people the wrong way. However, when it comes to going within a team that I don't know, I feel comfortable knowing that I'm going to get the information that I need to do my job and be able to anticipate the needs of the team by the way I communicate, by the, the intensity of my voice, the, 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 the type of language that I'm displaying. It really works really well in traumas as well because I don't know how your residents are there. We have a different group of general surgery that rotates each month. So I may not know these residents and we only get the second or fourth years. So I may not ever have worked with these individuals when they come down to a, for a trauma and they're going to be asking for certain things. And I make sure every activated MTP and I, if no one's saying anything, I re repeat that. Who's going to get the, the, the C collar? Who's going to get this? I'm doing this. One blanket here. Fluids are ready. Tick say administer, you know, saying these things very, very authoritatively from my perspective and being able to echo certain things. And once I'm able to do that, I think the type of communication helps me. And I think from a, I would say a talent standpoint, I feel very comfortable being able to read my team, even when I don't know those individuals. That's the one thing that I feel that I've been blessed with being able to adapt very quickly and understand my team. But I th think that I've trained myself on skill-wise is radical communication, uh, making sure I prep myself mentally to go into a situation where I can serve like war. This is going to be me, me going out there and training my, my, my team around me. If I have a student or a, re a resident with me, to communicate in that same way. Because if you don't do that, when you're not familiar with those teams, especially being a pharmacist where individuals are not used to having a pharmacist participate in the manner that I do, it's really important to gather that respect with the type of communication that you administer. I 100% agree with you on that. I think the way that you set the tone through your communication, especially when you are stepping into a group of people that don't know each other is, is critically important. Um, 
you mentioned, and I think there's a link here between that setting the tone, the mental prep, and going back to that idea of pride and preparation. So how do you train yourself or how do you train the, the teams around you for that first moment of, of conversation, that first moment of linkage? I think especially it's, it's easier for me to say what I do for students versus in the residents than I do for myself because it's something I've tried to just do every time. So I don't have a sophisticated way to answer that. But if I have a resident that's come up with me that's on co-response and they're gonna be the first pharmacist through the door, hey, when you come in, this is the first question I want you to ask. This is the this is the first thing I want you to look at. And I want you to announce yourself in a very loud tone. And I've mentioned it every single time. And what we've seen over the years, uh, as far as when it comes to pharmacists, code response to our emergency, medical emergency responses, we just show up, we have a few things there, we wait to, for someone to ask for a medication. I say, when you get in, you, you announce yourself, you, you ask, what's the, initial, what's the initial rhythm? What happened? Whose patient is this? Get in very quickly and try to understand who's the team lead, who's taking care of this. I'm the pharmacist. I will take care of your, all of your medication needs. You don't have to worry about it. Very quickly. So I say, when you walk in the room, this is what I expect. And over a period of time, training, especially second year pharmacy residents, they get used to my expectation of that. And they walk in the room a little bit more confident knowing that I'm behind them. I'm going to step in and I'm going to over communicate <laughs> if, there's, if that doesn't happen. So I think this, when, every time I'm with a learner, to let them know my expectations and explaining to them after doing a debrief, why did I do this? Why did you walk in the room guns blazing, said I'm the pharmacist, and how, how did that impact your team? And I'm gonna remind them, you're offloading a ton of information for nurses and your, your physician lead. And once you offload the information, you can gather some information for that provider in very small periods of time. I tell them, you probably have five to seven seconds to ask questions and gather information, and you have to do it in a certain way. I gather my information by, I ask during the second pulse check every single time, can we have a recap? Yeah, man, that's, that's so good. And I, I'm like nodding vigorously over here, although nobody can see me. But the, like, I think that's incredibly important um, to have your sense of timing, to have your sense of, of exchange with the other members of the team like that. And the way I was always trained was to walk in, you know, being the person who's going to be the physician code leader, to walk in and immediately say, I'm the ER doctor, who's in charge? And then if there's somebody in charge to ask, again, very closed loop, very forceful, very to the point, do you want me to take over? Or do you have control? Is it probably a better way to, to ask that, to be honest? And then if nobody, if you know, it's usually pretty obvious quite quickly if the person leading the room at the moment has control or not. And then if there's nobody identified or if that person doesn't have control to say out loud, I have control, this is what we're doing, and then move immediately forward with it. Mm -hmm. And to know that what that allows you to do is, like you said, it's not only offloading the actual knowledge base, it's offloading the worry and the anxiety that happens in the team when the command and control structure isn't obvious. Um, I think when people know where they fit into the protocol, when we have our team slots identified, we know what our roles are, that alleviates anxiety and it lets people focus on their technical skill and the deployment of that technical skill. Absolutely. Um, and it also opens the realm for really creative, you know, phenomenal, these sort of like out there approaches to problem solving. Like we mm -hmm. have to get through the initial basic block and tackling before we can get to that. 
Um, and uh, ah, man, I want to run a code with you now. That sounds amazing. <laughs> like, I hope nobody suffers a cardiac arrest, but if they do and we happen to be there, that, that's probably pretty fun. Um, uh, in, in the best way possible. I mean that. Uh, but yeah, but I, I think that modeling that for the people around us and not just for the people that are you know, below us or the people that we're training, the people above us, the people next to us, everybody to say, hey, this is the type of communication that works in this circumstance. This is what helps us convey our, our meaning quickly and coherently. And this is what allows us to, to focus our energy where it's most needed. Um, there's that other thing that you said about, about when is it the appropriate time to pass information back and forth and, and like what's the right way to do that? that. That makes me think of something you and I were sort of kicking around on the phone before um, we were setting this, this whole talk up, which was the idea of if you're not the lead, if you're anybody other than the one uh, sort of driving the ship, how do you nudge people? How do you get people to see an opportunity that you see that maybe they don't? And, and how do you move them into that? And I'll get us back, hopefully, to what we talked about um, at the beginning, which is that, that different vantage point about what's happening. So Absolutely. What's that? Absolutely. That's one thing that I, I try to explain to our, our, our different colleagues, what we bring to the table is that I'm looking at something and I won't disrupt you from what you're doing, but I'll provide subtle hints that I know that would get there. So, for example, I like to, again, I ask for recaps or I ask for a certain, I ask certain questions that's within your realm of thinking already. You, physicians have been taught to do a recap. You know, those things are not outlandish. But when I ask that recap, I'm counting in my head, how many epis did you give? And I'll say, hey, we've given, we've, we've administered seven epis. How do you feel about that? <laughs> not good, yeah. And, so, and some people, and that helps them for one, say, okay, there are a group of physicians that will say, I don't want to administer any more epi. I've maxed out that, that amount. And I'm okay with that. There's another group that will say, um, I want to continue giving epi for this many times. So it actually focuses on the drug administration and it gives a plan for that. I want a plan so I can know, hey, if you're going to continue giving epi, I need to gather a nurse or another colleague to grab me five more from another cold cart or go to another area to get that or become situations where we heard the report, and in my opinion, my limited opinion, it may be a, a suggestion to see if this patient have the PE. I would say, hey, do we have an ultrasound in the room? And I won't ask the team lead that. I may just ask someone else that's around. And once I heard, when someone hear me ask that, they say, hey, nine times out of 10, hey, can we get another physician to put the probe on a patient for the next pulse check? Or I say, XRT. Hey, do you have an entitle connected to that? Again, enough in, in, a, in a manner that I'm not disrupting the voice of the team lead, but doing it in a, in a fashion to where I can communicate side by side with the RT or to someone else to where the team lead can hear me very, very lightly, but I'm not over communicating within their code or speaking when they're speaking. And what happens a lot of time is, oh, the entitle is not connected. Hey, I want that. They would hear the response to that and then they would ask for those things. So I've got used to asking for things in a manner that I want the team lead to make a decision off of. I present a question. I, I want to be a nudge for him to make a, him or her to make a decision based off the information that I'm providing or the information that we do not have. And I try to do these things based off what we have evidence on and 
based off the things I can make an intervention or my provider can make an intervention off of. Are there, are there lung sliding? Are these things, you know, is this information available to us? How does patient go down? And once, again, it happens so many times where I've mentioned these things and they say, hey, do you have TPA? I say, yes, I do. With those, again, I have 50 milligrams, which is what the hospital protocol would say. I can have it ready for you in two minutes. How would you like, if I do administer this, we're talking about 15 to 20 minutes in addition. Are you prepared to run the code for that much longer? And I think those conversations really help me and it's more pronounced in code situations, but it happens in other situations as well. We go on to see a patient that potentially have sepsis. They're coming from a nursing home. Their blood pressure on the softer side. Hey, what's your thoughts on the volume status? You know, when, when would you like to start pressers? I ask these things, or I have the pressers already hanging on the pump. Just I'm saying, I'm just gonna have this here just in case. And it allows them to say, hey, I'm gonna do a passive leg raise. I'm gonna I'm gonna place an ALA. I'm gonna do these things, and then the medication is already there. But from my perspective, I can only provide so much information and provide so many recommendations that's outside of pharmacy. However, I can nudge for you, the provider, to get information that you can make decisions off of that I have solutions for. And I try my, my best to have things prepared before you ask for it because I'm thinking ahead. And one of the things that I teach students and residents is from a pharmacy perspective, you should be five to 10 minutes ahead, just pharmacy-wise, of your team. If the patient has a low blood pressure, you can identify that. The providers can identify that. What are you going to do about that? And have those solutions at the bedside so your team can decide to use or not use those things immediately. Man, I, I love that. And there's so many different directions to <laughs> so many good things, what you just said right there. I, I absolutely love that. You know, and it's sort of a counterpoint in a sense to what to what I teach my residents to say, which is when there's a pause in the action of a code, or you reach a point where you don't really know what the next step is to proceed to say out loud, hey team, this is, what I, this is my hypothesis, this is my summary, who has a different idea? Where's the disconfirming evidence? What am I missing? What am I not seeing? And really try to pull that information into the center so everybody in the room has that shared mental model of what's happening. And what you're describing is almost the counterpoint to that push approach to it, which is like, hey, here's, here's a thing we could be thinking about. Like, is this part of our mental model? Um, that, you know, I mean, efficiently and hopefully optimally, we'd be doing both of those things. We'd be pushing information when it's not obvious and then pulling information at certain points during, during the exchange as well. Um, and, you know, I, I just finished this book uh, called Turn the Ship Around by David Marquette, who's a, he was the commander of a uh, nuclear submarine. And it, the whole book is about sort of how he transformed the function of the submarine by changing leadership from a top-down model to a leader-leader model, um, where everybody owned their space and owned the responsibility for, for both pushing and pulling that information. Um, and at the end of the book, he talks about how when they had their review, the reviewer said, look, your guys tried to make as many mistakes as everybody else did, because that's part of human nature. But the systems that you had and the ownership that everybody had about their areas prevented those mistakes from happening. So those mistakes actually didn't get made. Um, and I love that idea because I think it applies so much to code situations where there's 
much less time and there's much less ability to sort of hash things through in, in the moment. But when you switch gears and you talk about what's happening in the next room over, man, that is pride in preparation, right? Because how we communicate, how we handle our situations in the lower intensity moments, that's the graduated pressure ramp to how we handle our situations in the high intensity moments. And, you know, we perform like we practice. And that's such an important thing to have that not only in that code room, but, but in all that we do. So, Absolutely. dude, thank you for that. That's, that's just like a gold mine of stuff to think through right there. And I think a lot of times where, again, we're, we both practice at shops that are in the top 10 nation when it comes to ER visits. So we probably see quite a bit of code activity. Mm-hmm. But when, I, when I tell other pharmacists, you know, I've been in hundreds of codes and I've been practicing some for a short period of time. They're like, what do you mean? So I get to see those environments, but I think the more, more important where we can provide more of a benefit that doesn't have, you know, a 95 to 90% mortality rate is in those other cases where we have a patient that has AFib and I'm asking myself, how can I prepare a pharmacy package? I would like to say a pharmacy care package for my team before they need it based off the information that I'm able to collect. Again, being a clinical pharmacist, having that additional training, being at the bedside, part of my training being from physicians. I was fortunate enough to have a physician rotation where I basically acted as a medical student for like a month and a half. Mm-hmm. So where I can collect information and make make assumptions off of that, but bring that information to my attending and they can clarify a little bit more. So taking that knowledge, taking that information and again, appropriately inserting questions or appropriately nudging at times to gather a better picture from a diagnostic standpoint to help sure up the package that I have for you from a pharmacy side of things. So I, I can't stress that there's a fine a fine line to walk because there could be certain teams that you can be part of, but that type of communication may not work. That type of communication may not be encouraged or appreciated. But I think building those relationships that we talked about before helps you understand when those situations are appropriate and not. Certainly. And and the closed, clipped, you know, hyper-focused communication that we use in a in a swarm team we've never been in before in a code situation uh, is obviously vastly different than the conversation. Well, I guess I shouldn't say obviously, is, is vastly different than the conversation we're likely to have back and forth in a lower acuity patient in our home turf when we're when we're learning at the same time that we're going. Um, and it probably should be different. Uh, and again, there's a great article, which I'll put in the, the show notes for this from the Mission Critical Teen Institute, where they analyzed communication patterns among um, multi-operator teams in cardiothoracic surgery, uh, and were able to chart sort of the exact moment in time when the team switched from a low acuity, low stress sort of routine mode to a high acuity, hypervigilant sort of sterile cockpit mode and how the communication changed during that interval. Um, but that's a skill, right? Like knowing how to recognize the tone and the pace of the room and what's about to happen next, that's a skill that comes, like you said, from watching film, right? From anticipating and and watching what happens and learning the cues of the people around you. Um, What are they, you know, how are they doing? How are they feeling? Are they stressed? Are they tired? Are they happy? And being able to anticipate what happens next and knowing, hey, there's a sea change coming. Therefore, I will change my communication metric or my communication method. I don't know what my question is at the end of that. I'm gonna have to think about that, but <laughs> I've got a lot of ideas circulating in there. Um, I just, 
I think we kind of hit the the last part pretty key what we what we want to do Good. as far as like how to you know drive from the passenger seat I would like mm. to say and I think I, I want to kind of emphasize in there that sometimes this may be more appropriate for resident physicians this may be more appropriate for you know individuals who are just starting a career where you, you may have practitioners who are nurses, pharmacists, or nursery therapists that have seen certain cases in a certain way and being mindful of learning because you don't want to say, hey, have you done this yet? And the attending walks in and the resident's sitting there and it's not necessarily the appropriate time, place, and situation for those things. And I think just being mindful of that and trying to give, I like to say, give certain clues to find certain things out without me even saying anything. Like having the calcium in my hand, walking towards the patient and looking at the provider and say, oh, I want calcium now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or just showing a provider a TPA before a patient gets in and hearing that a patient was short of breath and became apneic and, and now five minutes away. Just having those certain clues, I would say, because we don't think about it all the time, but having certain things in your way and communicating beforehand can really help out certain situations where if I anticipate hyperkalemia, that's an in-state dialysis patient, I ask someone loudly, hey, can you go get an insulin valve for me? Can you go get more calcium for me? This may, this may be an okay one for bicarb. Saying those things, I, like to, I call it teaching out loud, where I'm teaching a student or a learner in the appropriate time before we get the room set that will clue in other team members to certain things that they're not even paying attention to. And I try to do that as often as I can when the situation is appropriate. But I think that sometimes you don't necessarily have to say those things or you don't, you can just give certain clues. And we're fortunate to where a pharmacist end product is, is something that's physical, that's tangible that I can show someone and we can provide those clues to our team. So I think that's something I want to emphasize there and realize that it's not always about talking in certain situations. It's more about giving the team lead or giving an individual clues to what you're thinking and the data you've gathered for them to make an appropriate decision off of it. So it's really, again, going back to that idea that, that winning is building the team and the mm -hmm. value of teamwork. And what you're sort of describing is the idea of priming the pump for everybody around you. Like, can you, can you set the stage for them to make successes on not really on their own, but collectively as part of the unit? Um, and I'm thinking back with great fondness all the number of times that was done for me to pave the road for me to become a better doctor, uh, which was a lot. And I'm incredibly grateful for the people that, that were able to, to help guide me along that path as well. Um, and J Jimmy, thank you. This is, this is awesome. And I have totally loved talking with you about this. And I, I man, folks are lucky to have you on their team for sure. Definitely. Thanks um, for having me on. Even think about these things and what you have going on with the show is amazing. I think it's going to help not just, and I think you did a great job of saying this is not just for physicians. It's not just for healthcare workers. This is something that I hope that can prime to everyone, whether, you know, you're an EMS worker or you're, you're, you're a firefighter, just the type of communication that we have within teams can be the glue for success. And yeah. I thank you for creating all this, this platform for it. Uh, it it's been a pleasure, man. Um, as we're closing out here, I want to I want to give you the the chance to ask our traditional question, which is, what is your challenge? What do you want people listening to this podcast to do differently tomorrow on shift, 
to do next week when they're fighting a fire, whatever it is, what do you want them to take home and, and get after? The, the one thing I want the audience to take home is to invest in your team, invest energy into the team and invest energy in understanding what a win means for not just you, because I think sometimes we get caught up into that. Invest energy in knowing one more thing about one of your colleagues that they will allow you to know. Invest more time and energy, I would like to say, into just being a one, I would say one question closer as a, as a friend, as a teammate, and as a colleague. And I think that will lead to successes later on. And I think it will build the best team possible and lead to great performance. Absolutely amazing. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you again. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash signup. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.